Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Judy Salerno, president of the New York Academy of Medicine. And on behalf of the Academy and our partner, the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, I welcome you to this next event in our Race and Health series. Here at the Academy, we're champions for health equity. Our vision is a world where everyone has the opportunity to live a healthy life. Through scholarly, community, and public engagement, we work to build a more equitable and healthier world for all. NIAM's mission to drive progress toward improved health through attaining health equity has never been more vital. We cannot achieve health equity without doing our part in recognizing the traumatic impact that systemic racism has had in this country. At NIAM, we're committed to dismantling systemic racism as we seek to tackle the barriers that prevent every individual from living a healthy life. This event is part of our exploration of how the profound inequities in American society give rise to enormous and unfair health consequences, a dynamic further laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're looking at the inequities around black maternal health. We'll hear from some wonderful, engaged and insightful scholars and activists. This afternoon, is a partnership with the consortium, as I mentioned before. And the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine is comprised of 27 educational, cultural, and scientific institutions in the US, Canada, and the United Kingdom. It promotes the academic and public understanding of the history of science, technology, and medicine. Its program, Historical Perspectives on Contemporary Issues, pairs historians with policymakers to create events such as this, with the results shared and expanded online. We're happy to partner with them this afternoon as part of our ongoing collaboration. It's now my pleasure to introduce a very special person, Chanel Portia Albert, founder and operating chief operating officer of Ancient Song Doula Services. Ms. Portia Albert's work in infant and maternal health have led her across the globe to Uganda, where she served as a maternal health strategist in rural war-torn areas. She's also a certified lactation counselor, midwifery assistant, and a vegan chef. She's served as a consultant for the New York Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and serves on advisory boards at Ariadne Labs at Harvard Medical School, the board of directors for March for Moms, and the Board of the Foundation for the Advancement of Midwifery, as well as Village Birth International. Most recently, she's been appointed to the New York City Mayor's Commission on Gender Equity. Her work in birth and reproductive justice continues into the research and methods of care of people in marginalized conditions and people of color, bringing a human rights framework into birthing rooms and beyond and into institutional reform. Ms. Portia Alberts will introduce our other participants and guide us in our discussion this afternoon. Please welcome Chanel Portia Albert. Greetings, thank you, Judy, for a wonderful introduction. Um, greetings, everyone, good afternoon. I am so pleased to be the moderator for today's event. Uh, for the New York Academy of Medicine. Before we get started, I just have a, a few quick housekeeping rules. 
Um, if you have any questions or comments for our pre presenters, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. The support staff and moderator will select questions as the presenters go through their presentations. Please be aware that given time constraints, your questions might not necessarily be answered, but they are valued. Um, and tech support questions should also be asked through the Q&A function. Uh, there will be a post-event recording available in the near future, and we will send uh, follow-up emails once um, this is available. So just so you know, in case you have to miss something and we know how it is in Zoom world, um, especially I'm sure some of you are maybe at work or you know, at home in your new home office with your children and you gotta run away from the screen, don't worry, we have you covered. Uh, uh, before Again, before we get started, I'd also like to um, thank our sponsors for today's event. Uh, we would like to thank the Pew Charitable Trust, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation for their support of this program, as well as acknowledge the Barry and Bobby Kohler Programming Fund for support of today's event. All right, well, now without further ado, I'd love to introduce Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens, um, who is our first presenter. Deidre Cooper Owens is the Linda and Charles Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and Director of Humanities in the Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is an Organization of American Historians Distinguished Lecturer, a past American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists Research Fellow, and has won a number of prestigious honors for her scholarly and advocacy work in reproductive and birth justice. A popular public speaker, Deidre Cooper Owens, has spoken widely across the US and in Europe. She has published articles, essays, book chapters, and think pieces on a number of issues that concern African-American experiences and reproductive justice. Her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the Organization of American Historians and as the best book written in American women's and gender history. Um, and it's, to me, is like a good, just my all around good person, um, a friend, a colleague in this work. And I'm super excited to be able to introduce you. And I know the audience is really excited to hear from you today. Hi, thank you. I am so, so, so happy to be here. I wish I could be in New York with you all, but alas, um, there is a global pandemic. I just wanna thank um, CHSTM and the New York Academy of Medicine for allowing me to share some of my work with you. So what I'm gonna do now is share screen so that we can go through this presentation together. All right, so here we go. So I was confronted with James Marion Sims's legacy. And this really comes about for me in 2017. A little bit before my book is published, I was a professor at Queens College, a part of the, the CUNY system. And this was around August. And I remember getting a number of messages and texts and emails and people asking me about a protest that was taking place right across the street from New York Academy of Medicine at the easternmost part of Central Park. And there were a number of activists there, primarily uh, this was sponsored by the Black Youth Project 100. And these, these young folk were interested in carrying on the work of grassroots 
activists like Marina Ortiz to get this statue removed. I had nothing to do with it. And in fact, I was firmly ensconced in my little protective shell as an academic who said, I just write about dead people and, and that's it. But thanks to my editor, he said, we have to ride the wave and you have to be able to get in front of this. And so my press released the book early. And what that allowed me to really do uh, in my role as a historian and someone who centers the lives of Black women in my work, I was able to really have a platform to educate people about the past and educate people about the linkages of slavery to the development of American gynecology. And so often when journalists would um, approach me for a story, they would ask questions that really frustrated me, right? But I understand this is the way that journalism functions in this country. It's always either or, right? Was James Marion Sims a savior of women or a medical monster? And I wanted something that was a bit more complex because one, that puts the focus on James Marion Sims as if he was the face of American gynecology, when in fact, gynecology and obstetrics um, were being built up in the age of bondage, during the age of slavery. And these men's access to enslaved bodies really helped push these branches of medicine forward. And so I wanted to be able to paint for the public uh, a picture of the antebellum landscape in this country. And that picture contained Black women right, and their roles within this, um, within this branch. So I didn't play nice. And in fact, I, I, I really um, didn't answer questions about the statue because I wanted to get the historical narrative out. And so a part of reframing the conversation and pivoting it was first answering or, or posing this question, was Sims exceptional in his treatment of enslaved women? And so for those who've read my book, for those who haven't, I can tell you what chapter one is about. Chapter one essentially lists all of the ways that in fact, Sims was not that exceptional. And he develops and inherits a cultural practice from his forefathers in natural history and in medicine, who helped to create some of the ideas that they had about black people and in particular black women. And it also shows the, the the ways that Sims is fashioning his practice, his medical practice and his experimentation off of the decades of experimentation that had been done all across the Atlantic world. So that means from Europe to the Americas, from the colonial period all the way to the 19th century. And so first I began with the discussion of Georges Cuvier, who was French born, he is the last person who has access to the South African-born Sarki Bartman, or Sarah Bartman, her anglicized name. She was derisively called the hot and top Venus. And although people tend to focus on her body shape, for me, I was really interested in how did Cuvier write about, treat this woman who he had ownership of in terms of his role as one of the leading scientists at the National Museum of Paris. And so when she dies, what he does in his notes, right, that are also accessible to uh, a white male elite public, he talks about the ways that he performs an autopsy on Bartman's cadaver. And he removes her genitals, preserves it, puts it in a jar, 
Her brain preserves it, puts it in a jar, and also displays her skeleton. And in fact, I mean, this is just an aside, it's displayed in the National Museum of Paris until 1974. She died at the, a little bit after the turn of the 19th century, right? But what this does for me, outside of the kind of sensationalism around this, it tells me the ways that Black women, and in particular, Sarki Bartman acts as a template for the, for the ways that white medical men throughout the Atlantic world start to treat Black women, and it, whether it's science or in medicine. And so then, if we go to 1809, Ephraim McDowell, right, father of ovariotomy, perfects most of his experimental surgeries on the bodies of, of Black women, most of whom are enslaved in Kentucky. John Peter Matara does the same surgical repair work that uh, uh, James Marion Sims is known for, but he does it a, a decade or so before. And he also performs experimental surgical work on an enslaved woman and a white woman, right? But these are names that we are not that familiar with. Francois-Marie Provost, the father of the C-section, French-born, first begins experimental work on pregnant women in Haiti. When the Haitian Revolution happens in 1804 and he must leave, he goes to another former French colony, Louisiana, begins the same experimental work all the way up until the 1840s. Um, and so he's doing this well before Sims. And so what I'm really trying to show is we cannot create historical boogeymen, right? That's not the function of something that's systemic or structural, right? There are all kinds of building blocks to create a foundation that's structural. And Sims is a part of it, but he literally is in a long line of folk who had done that kind of work. So Ephraim McDowell, I'll just share a bit about him. Virginia born, he was a slave owning physician. He, he first uh, performs the first recorded a successful abdominal surgery where he removes a disease of um, ovarian tumor from a white patient, Mary Todd Crawford. Amazingly, the woman lives uh, until old age. And because she, she survives this abdominal incision, he is really now on a, a search for how to perfect this procedure. Who are the most vulnerable and accessible bodies in a slave-owning space, right? Enslaved people. And so in Kentucky, in this little teeny town, he finds at least five women, all of them Black. One of them might have been a free woman of color, as they were called then, and he performs these experimental surgeries. Over the course of nine years, one of the women died. He publishes his findings, right? And this really opens up America as a place where people are now looking to see how certain medical branches are developing. But I can tell you in almost every historical source, you're gonna see the ways that, that slavery is linked to this development, particularly with reproductive medicine and health. And so McDowell, he publishes these findings eight years later in 1817, and he is derided to write it all across the Atlantic world, particularly by his European colleagues. And in fact, I paraphrase here, but a Dr. Johnson in The Lancet, which was arguably the most respected um, medical journal coming out of London, 
he says, well, of course these women would have survived this surgery, meaning the negresses, because they bear cutting with the impunity of dogs and rabbits. And so once again, this idea that somehow Sims creates uh, 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 ideology or set of beliefs that black women and black people don't experience pain had already been in circulation throughout the Atlantic world, right? Today we call that race, you know, racial science, but that had already been in circulation. John Peter Mattel, a pioneer in obstetrical fistula surgery, he essentially writes about his own experimental work. He performs this experiment on a white patient and an enslaved patient. The white patient is healed. And let me just tell you a little bit, this is a, a condition that happens, it was called vesicovaginal fistula um, in the 19th century, but it happens when a woman has a prolonged birth or birthing person has a prolonged birth. And as you're trying to expel the, the child and you can't, there is a friction, right? That creates a sloughing in the upper vaginal area. Fistula holes are then uh, created and the bladder or the vesicle is um, displayed because of that hole and the result is incontinence. And so John Peter Mattel recognizes, although this isn't deadly, but it is something, especially as a slave-owned physician, it can decrease the value of, quote-unquote, you know, breeding slaves. And so he goes about experimenting. The white patient recovers. The black patient doesn't. And in his article, he writes, had she stopped engaging in sexual intercourse, the patient would have healed sooner, right? And it's really telling because although women had a degraded place in society, what happens is the reproductive labor, the extracted reproductive labor of this enslaved woman who goes through these experiments year after year after year means that she is not allowed to heal because she literally cannot control being engaged in sexual intercourse. And of course, as a slave owner, he knows this, right? But, in, but instead of thinking about the ways that her condition, right, the condition of being enslaved, having to perform work, having uh, experimental surgeries performed on her after a number of years might have also negated her, her recovery. He patient blames, right? That's what we call it in the 21st century. So it cannot be anything he did. It was this woman's inability, this enslaved woman's inability to stop uh, engaging in sex. And then lastly, this is the person that most people know because he had the moniker, the father of American gynecology. And no, I did not give him that moniker. I remember looking on a wiki page and somebody said, Deirdre Cooper Owens named him that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. His colleagues gave him that moniker after his death in the 1870s. But he becomes known as the father of American gynecology because if Sims was good at something, it was self-promotion. And so Sims was a prolific medical writer. He ascended in terms of his status after he published his 1852 article on vesicovaginal fistula. And what really happens here is Sims, much like Ephraim McDowell before him, he is confronted with a white woman who falls from a horse. Supposedly her uterus was retroversed. Uh, he writes about this and he, is, uh, he, he gets this idea to somehow open the vaginal uh, cavity and he writes, a rush of air came in and her uterus turned right side up, right? That's what he wrote. However, there was an enslaved woman 
who had been sent to his hospital, his little medical office, by her owner, Tom Zimmerman. And she had vesicle vaginal fistula. Sim said, I can't, I can't cure you. You can spend the night, but you got to go back to, to the plantation. But after seeing this white woman's condition and having this idea, if I could somehow open the vaginal cavity wide enough to see where the incontinence is happening, maybe I can fix these women. And so he literally, in an almost five-year period, as he says, collects cases across his county. He lived in a little rural space, originally Mount Meigs, Alabama. And he collects a little bit uh, over half a dozen, um, excuse me, enslaved women. He leases them from their owners. And he begins a multi-year experiment that lasts almost five years, performing a number of experiments on these women. Now, there are some things that are factual and some things that are not. Does Sims butcher them? Let me tell you what a slave owner is not going to do when he leases a slave, because he doesn't own them. Had he butchered them, he would have literally ceased the economic assets and potential for the men who owned them. So he was intent on saving, preserving their reproductive abilities and health, because the engine of slavery could not survive without Black women giving birth to enslaved babies. In colonial America, there was a law, Part II Secretary Ventrum, that happens in the 1700s, where white men, colonial legislators decide, they don't care who the father is, but as long as a Black woman is enslaved, that child inherits the mother's status. So Sims was not about to try to make these women sterile. In fact, he's trying to, to recover their reproductive health, not because he was a, a kind and compassionate person, but because that's how slavery operates, right? And slavery was firmly established in the 19th century. And it was one of the surefire ways one attains wealth and status in American society. So he begins this for five years, uh, later moving his office to Montgomery, Alabama. What happens in that two and a half, three year period, his white surgical assistants, two of them quit. And he has to train his enslaved patients to also serve as nurses. But as a historian who centers black women in her work, I thought, isn't this interesting? Black women were supposed to be on the lowest rung of the human ladder, right? Because they were women, they were a subset of men. Because they were Black, they had intellectual, um, you know, uh, they lived in a state of intellectual arrested development. And yet, Sims teaches them the very thing that he taught his white male surgical assistants, which is interesting, right? And beyond that, there is a way in which I always reframe the conversation to say, Sims doesn't achieve success in this experimental surgical method until he has a team of enslaved women who are assisting him as nurses and surgical assistants, right? And so it is interesting because what he does, he creates this hospital in, in, the, in the 1840s, but the historical record ignored Sims's creation of this hospital. And this is a later, a picture of it later in 1895, but they ignore the creation of this hospital and say, oh, the first hospital for women was founded in New York in 1855 by Sims. And I'm like, wait, how are we gonna ignore what this man actually told us in articles and his memoir? But because 
black women were the ones being serviced and experimented on, right? Um, operated on, it then somehow erases the historical fact that the first hospital dedicated to finding out how to, to quote unquote fix, and I'm using 19th century language, women's reproductive problems through gynecological surgery was actually done in the black belt, right? Sims also perfects the Sims speculum by using two pewter spoons initially to um, perform a cervical examination on these enslaved women. And, and I remember when I was a grad student writing my dissertation, people saying to me, you don't have enough information. I mean, how are you gonna get information? Because as historians, we have to be able to read between the lines, the gaps, the, sound, the silences. And so although enslaved women who were legally made to be illiterate couldn't leave written sources, what are people writing about them? And so I know they have to be smart because they're learning the same procedures white male surgical assistants did. I know that they fought against their own restraint when they were being operated on because Sims writes about how some of these enslaved women lost sight of themselves and struggled violently, which puts to, to rest these, these fictions about Black people not experiencing pain. If they didn't experience pain, you wouldn't have to restrain them, right? Also, Sims, um, you know, he uh, recognizes too the ways that slavery works. During the experimental trial, one of the women, we don't know who she is because she was never named in the records, gives birth to a mulatto child. And that really, for me, is the biomedical ethical question of how you're preparing these women and yet you allow someone, allow an enslaved woman's body that you don't own, that's only being leased to you by her white master, to be essentially raped during her experimental trial. And she gives birth to a, a mulatto child, right? Which is the youngest person on the slave farm. And so, for me, that was the much more pressing issue when I was asked these questions about Sims. I wanted to be able to have people think about the, the legacy of Sims, which is really for Black women in gynecology and reproductive medicine, one of erasure. We can see that this is an actual illustration from one of the articles commemorating the surgery. All of a sudden, the enslaved women are gone, and now we have a white nurse and a white patient. Right? And the other legacy is not just erasure, but the legacy of medical racism. And so today in the 21st century, right, we are now dealing with stats that many of you are familiar with. Black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women, right? There are now cities across the nation, not enough of them, and organizations that are finally saying medical racism is a public health crisis. And when we think about a maternal health crisis, it's sad for me as someone who studies the 19th century that we are literally repeating some of the same statistics that we had to confront, or I should say our ancestors had to confront in the 19th century. And so I am going to stop here. Thank you for your attention. Um, and I welcome your questions, your comments, I always am really excited to engage in conversations kind of outside of the university classroom wall. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Deidre, for your wonderful presentation and for always illuminating um, the realities of the ways in which um, Black bodies have been used to advance science and 
in medicine within this country. Um, I would now like to um, introduce in between, we're gonna go to quick Q&A at the end, just so folks know, um, just as a reminder. So please, like if you have any questions, um, please make sure to drop them in the Q&A box so that we can be sure to ask them um, at the end after everyone has presented. Um, I'd like, now like to introduce uh, a wonderful um, mini break uh, where we're going to have Lucretia Berry uh, better known as Barry, is a singer, songwriter, actress, poet, educator, and writer from Queens by the way of Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. She has produced three one-woman shows in 2002. Her latest one, her latest uh, one-woman show, Tubman, a reimagining of Harriet Tubman's life as a young girl in Harlem, debuted to pack audiences in her hometown of Lexington, Kentucky, and New York City. With additional performances in San Diego, Rikers Island, New Bedford, Massachusetts, Sacramento, and Tubman's birthplace of Cambridge, uh, Maryland. When not performing, she's teaching spoken word to middle and high school students in the Bronx and conducting educational workshops and writing curriculums. In addition, Barry is also currently writing her debut uh, YA novel, Seeing Janelle. Um, can we, let's, let's introduce and, and give Barry a wonderful, um, air clap hey <laughs> as she brings us um a wonderful spoken word presentation barry you go ahead and take it away thank you so much for having me i really appreciate um this opportunity to share some work that i've been working on um two years ago i was with um the new york academy of medicine and the consortium and uh, i wrote a piece uh, about the three women that were um uh, sadly experimented on by um, the doctor that you mentioned and uh, J. Marion Sims and I wrote a piece for that so I'm going to share that first and then I'll have two other pieces that kind of go along with mental health and, and black women's bodies and uh, go from there. <clears throat> Giants do die the bigger they are the harder they fall. This is a celebration. I'm talking gather all your people, gather all your ancestors and tell them from the hills of Tryon Park to the surgical tables of Columbia, to skin and eyes so dark, to the heart and mental health of black women bodies everywhere. He's finally come down. In 2018, it seems mythical, even Old Testament biblical, like I'm sitting Sunday school, like crisscross, like applesauce, eyes wide with historical wonder, with storytelling drool that a man was given the highest praise to mark his hallelujahs and awards and surgical pranks all over my very alive, very present black and blue commodity, I mean, body, what did he think would happen? Would his scalpel turn collared and his fingers spit the battle of Jericho? Did he believe the dark matter, his heart and mind give me peace of mind while he took a piece of mine? Yeah, today I have the time. Cause small men in giant copper stances gotta come down because this 
is a celebration. Resurrection of the Holy Trinity, the highly melanated three, and Arca, Betsy, and Lucy, and so many others, maybe sisters, maybe mothers, most identities forgotten, but we remember him no more. They may enslave me, but a slave I'll never be. I, a mother, I, a sister, I, a human, breathe, breath, getting me through each moment, release, freeing me. I have control over my own body. No maybes, no ifs, no probabilities. I'm no anomaly. I'm not a special black girl. I'm just flesh and sinew and bone and breast, no victim, even though his fingertips led me to believe otherwise. I despise the mark left on my joy, celebrate my pain for his gain, statues made fame for my sickly frame. It's a shame, but I have a name. We have names, we have names. This is a celebration. I'm singing remembrance round these everlasting revels whose melodies effortlessly brought that man that not once an apology of a man from the Coromantee to the Fulani to the Harlem legacies to the heart and mental health of black women's bodies everywhere. He's finally come down, finally come down, come down, 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 down. Yes, yeah, y'all. You done brought it all into context. Um, we greatly appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your artiste um, with us. Um, for those of you, just a quick reminder on housekeeping. Um, if you have any questions or comments for our presenters, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Um, and the support staff and moderator, I will select a questions um, to ask our presenters. Given time constraints, we may not be able to answer everyone's questions, but we will definitely make a valid attempt to get to everyone. Also, this is being recorded and we will be able to, um, as soon as the Academy has it ready, um, everyone will be sent an email with a copy of the recording so you can access it for future viewing. All right, now I would love to introduce a friend, colleague, uh, Dr. Lynn Roberts, who is our next presenter. Dr. Lynn Roberts earned a BS in human development from Howard University, 1984, and a PhD in human uh, services study from Cornell University. She's Associate Dean of Students and Affairs and Alumni Relations, and a tenured faculty member and a CUNY graduate of Public Health and Health Policy. Prior to CUNY, she oversaw the development, implementation, and evaluation of several programs for women and youth in New York City. She is the Emirates Board member of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective and co-edited the anthology Re Radical Reproductive Justice Foundations, Theories, Practice, and Critique. And if you have not gotten that book, make sure you go out and get it. All right. Um, and Dr. Roberts, you can take it away. Thank you, Chanel. So good afternoon, everyone. And I just wanna, again, thank you, Chanel, for the introduction and for everyone at the um, New York Academy of Medicine 
and their collaborators for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here with all of you and especially with my former CUNY colleague, Dr. Cooper Owens. So I am going to share um, the reproductive justice reckonings part of our, our, our talk this afternoon. Um, these will be my, my key points to provide an overview of the reproductive justice framework, um, some sharing of reproductive justice and maternal public health in New York City, and, and briefly touch upon um, Black mamas birthing in the time of COVID-19. So I will first begin with what is reproductive justice and why it is critical to Black maternal health, but I cannot do that without first talking about what is reproductive injustice, which refers to the control and exploitation of cis, trans women and girls and other marginalized people through our bodies, our sexuality, our labor and our reproduction. And it is this regulation of our bodies that becomes a powerful and strategic pathway to controlling entire communities. It involves social injustices and systems of oppression that are based on our quote unquote race, our ability, class, sex, gender, sexuality, age, immigration status, and so much more. I don't believe I need to touch upon this slide at all following Dr. Cooper Owen's presentation and of course her, her wonderful book. I will refer, however, to the reckoning around the statue, even if it is a symbolic one that this took place after several decades of, of organizing efforts to remove the J. Marion Sim statue from the perimeter of Central Park and across the street, of course, from the New York Academy of Medicine. Um, these images of myself doing a, a solo protest, and I, I point this out, it was a former student of mine who invited me to take this photo that eventually was um, installed in the Kimmel windows at a, another institution in New York City. And it was my attempt to honor the victims of his medical experimentation on enslaved um, African descendant women and infants by connecting their sacrifice to the long line of black women and girls whose bodies have been brutalized by reproductive and state violence and oppression. And like so many other statues, this statue needed to be removed from its location in a historically black and Latino community and across again from the New York Academy of Medicine. And despite Viola Plummer, a local activist leading the charge in the outcry of local community leaders decades before, it was not until a coalition of activists and community leaders in New York City uh, mobilized and were later joined by city council members that the statue was actually removed from this location in April 2018. And I don't have images, but the artist Vinnie Bagwell was chosen by the community. And that was not, that was a lengthy process um, to install a memorial to um, the enslaved African women um, whom uh, Dr. Cooper Owens speaks of um, so well in her book. But there have been several other examples of reproductive oppression from the eugenics movement to increase births among those deemed the fittest and to decrease births among those deemed to be unfit. From the late 1800s until the early 1970s, Native American children were removed from their families and sent to boarding schools to civilize and remove 
their culture. There have been numerous cases of sterilization abuse by the US government and medical institutions have specifically targeted Puerto Rican women both on the island and mainland, African-American women and girls in North Carolina, as well as those victimized by what Fannie Lou Hamer described as the Mississippi appendectomy during the 1920s through the 1970s, to Native American women on reservations, Mexican-American women in California. And in recent years, we have witnessed restrictions on comprehensive sex education in schools, coercive use of contraceptives, restrictions on and, and punishment um, in accessing abortion, discriminatory early termination of parental rights, the separation of children from their parents through foster care and immigration enforcement, and the demonization and criminalization of pregnant and parenting women, girls, and femmes of color based on our race, our age, our substance use, our immigration status, and being poor. In recent months, we have seen the specter of reproductive injustice during COVID-19, which I'll touch upon later. And in recent weeks, we learned immigrant women detained by ICE in Georgia were forced to have hysterectomies. We learned of this thanks to brave whistleblower Don Wooten, who is a shero deserving our protection. While Dr. Cooper Owens has spoken about the th three to four um, more times that black women are likely to die due to pregnancy-related causes, I want to draw our attention specifically to New York City, where the mortality surveillance report found that between 2008 and 2010, black women in New York City were 12 times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes. Between 2011 to 2015, black women were eight times more likely than white women, which was a decrease. The leading causes of their deaths were cardiovascular conditions, embolisms, infection, and hemorrhage. But with these disparities, many of us have concluded that the leading cause was some form of racism. Sorry, I'm missing a slide. I also want to call the names of three Black women who died in the past year. Shamani Makiba Gibson, who died after she gave birth in a Brooklyn hospital in September of 2019. Amber Rose Isaac, who died in April of this year during the height of the COVID-19 crisis. And after tweeting about her poor treatment in a Bronx hospital, and Shaisha Washington, who died in July of this year after birth at the same hospital as Shamani. Pregnancy-related mortality is just the tip of the iceberg. An even bigger picture is revealed by looking at severe maternal morbidity, which reflects what we call near misses. Overall, the SMM rate in New York City between 2008 to 2012 was 231.9 per 10,000 deliveries. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. I just need a sip of water. <laughs> and all racial ethnic groups had higher SM rates compared to white women. If you look at the two bars with red circles, 
black women had three times higher SMM rates than white women. So in a nutshell, reproductive injustice is a problem. It's a, prob it's a problem nationally. It's a problem here in New York City. Reproductive justice is just one of three frameworks that has emerged in response to reproductive injustice and oppression. The other two are reproductive health and reproductive rights. I consider all three critical and they are not mutually exclusive, but it is important to distinguish them. Reproductive health emphasizes the necessary reproductive health services that people need. It strategizes on improving and expanding services, research and access, particularly prevention and culturally competency in communities of color. The primary constituents are patients and clients needing services and or education, which focuses on providers, medical professionals, community and public health educators, and health service providers. Some of the challenges of this approach is that it, the services and education are often directed at the individual level. The root causes of health inequities are often not addressed. It can be resource intensive without leading to long-term change. And then there are limited access issues because different people have differing levels of reproductive health literacy and resources to access those services. Reproductive rights analyzes the core problem as a lack of legal protection, laws or enforcement of those laws that ensure an individual woman's legal right to the reproductive health care services, especially abortion. People are organized to participate actively in the political process through the electoral system and encouraged to vote and call their members of Congress or state legislatures. The key players are advocates, legal experts, policymakers, and elected officials. Some of the challenges to this approach are that it focuses on individual choice and obscures the social context in which individuals make those choices. It assumes a level of knowledge, access to elected officials, and belief in the effectiveness of the political system. People who are marginalized often do not have this access, knowledge, or even faith in the ability of the system to meet their needs. Finally, reproductive justice is an organizing model, and it is a reframing that requires us to understand the historical context of the control of the sexuality and reproduction of those who have been deemed less human and less deserving and its consequences on their health and well-being. It also requires us to listen to and mobilize community members most impacted by reproductive oppression and other injustices. There are many definitions of reproductive justice, but I often return to this one. It is when all people have the social, political, and economic power and resources to make healthy decisions about our gender, bodies, and sexuality for ourselves, our families, and our communities. While the theory and practice, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just want to share with you the founding mothers of the reproductive justice framework. I will silently call their names, but they are listed here for you to recognize and honor them. 
The term reproductive justice was coined by this group of 12 black women in 1994. While they were attending a conference in Chicago sponsored by the Illinois Pro-Choice Alliance and the Ms. Foundation for Women. It was at that time that the Clinton administration under the leadership of Hillary Clinton was making a first attempt at health care reform but failed to address reproductive health. These 12 black women formed women of African descent for reproductive justice. These founding mothers were looking for a way to articulate the needs of communities of color that face multiple forms of sexual and reproductive oppression. As first articulated and since expanded by, first, by Sister Song, reproductive justice is the human right to decide if and when you will have a child and the conditions under which you will give birth or create a family, the human right to decide if you will not have a child and your options for preventing or ending a pregnancy, the human right to parent your children with the necessary social supports in safe environments and healthy communities and without threat of harm from individuals, organizations, or the government. And finally, it is the human right to bodily autonomy from any form of sexual or reproductive oppression. While the theory, strategy, and practice of reproductive justice have evolved over time, from the outset, the framework has been built in recognition of the need for an intersectional, intersectional analysis defined by the human rights framework based on the practice of self-help and community care that would be inclusive and applicable to everyone. The first element of reproductive justice is intersectionality in which we address the intersecting systems of oppression and health inequities. The first, the term intersectionality was first coined by critical race scholar Kimberly Crenshaw and later expounded upon by Patricia Hill Collins in her seminal book, Black Feminist Thought. I will also note that there is a long history of intersectional analysis and organizing that predated the use of this term. From Sojourner Truth asking, ain't I a woman? To Anna Julia Cooper reminding us, only the black woman can say when and where I enter in the quiet, undisputed dignity of my womanhood without violence and without suing or special patronage, then and there, the entire race enters with me. And that was in 1892 to Frances Beale, with her book, Double Jeopardy, in 1969, to Tony K. Bambara's um, anthology, The Black Woman, in 1970, to the Kamahi River Collective's Black Feminist Statement in 1974, and I quote from that statement, it is the synthesis of these oppressions that creates the conditions of our lives. The second foundational element of the reproductive justice framework is human rights generally defined as those rights which are inherent at birth and without which we cannot live as human beings. They are universal and apply to all persons and they are not restricted to any protected class or group. They are based on humankind's continuous and increasing demand for a life in which the inherent dignity and worth of each human being will receive respect and protection. These are the eight categories of human rights and more than 70 years since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, when these rights are threatened for any of us, they threaten all of us.
The third foundational element is self-help and community care, which originated with the Black women's health movement in the United States, um, led by Billy Avery, and has been spread internationally by the National Black Women's Health Project and the National Latina Health Organization. It's been used in women's health movements by HIV AIDS activists and amongst indigenous and women of color groups throughout the United States. I just want to point out that birth justice was first coined as a legal term by Farah Diaz-Tielo and Lynn Paltrow, then of National Advocates for Pregnant Women, in a 2010 working paper that emerged from talking points at the Sister Song 2010 Let's Talk About Sex conference in Miami. It was also adopted by the Southern Birth Justice Network and used um, in a series of workshops that they first um, presented in 2010 and many times since throughout the US and Caribbean. And courtesy of our moderator for today, Chanel Portia Albert and her powerful organization, here is a working definition of birth justice that I have found useful. I'm not going to read it to you now, but you can refer to it there. I will just say that fundam fundamentally, um, there are a series of strategies that have been used in reproductive justice and birth justice. Fundamentally, we analyze and work to change unjust systems of power. When necessary, we take direct action. We strive to center the most marginalized and support their leadership by privileging their unique ways of knowing the world based on their lived experience, and we look to them for solutions. We build and sustain a power base by listening to, engaging with, and mobilizing with those communities most affected by sexual and reproductive oppression to address their most salient issues. We build and support a network of allied social justice organizations who integrate a reproductive justice analysis and agenda into their work. The potential for radical transformation through reproductive justice can alarm or make cynics of many across the political spectrum. We educate our current electeds about reproductive justice and groom and support new candidates for office. We also encourage voter registration, educate the public on the issues, and we fight against voter suppression. Through storytelling or we search, as opposed to research, we reveal stories of human rights violations, acts of humiliation, violence, and exclusion. And finally, we always honor our elders, those who came before us for their wisdom, and as much as possible, preserve and restore their traditions. And now briefly, I'm just going to share some notes from the field of my work in New York City addressing the Black maternal health crisis. Between 2015 and 2019, I served as a consultant, along with Chanel and others, to the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, helping them to integrate a sexual and reproductive justice framework into their work. 
In the first full year of the community engagement group, which we formed, we created a video to educate New York residents, community organizations, and public health workers about a sexual and reproductive justice framework. The link to this video, which you can view um, afterwards, will be shared um, with you. This is a timeline that illustrates the depth and breadth of community engagement that contributed to what would eventually be known as the New York Standards for Respectful Care at Birth that we created. And I will take a moment to acknowledge fellow consultant to the New York City Department of Health, Taja Lindley, who led this effort. This was a three-year process that culminated in a release of the New, York City, the New York City Standards on International Human Rights Day in 2018, followed by a week of action that included a stakeholder meeting held at the New York Academy of Medicine. Following the sexual and reproductive justice framework, the standards have a human rights focus, since not all rights are legally protected rights in the United States. These documents have been widely distributed in maternal hospitals throughout New York City. And again, a link to um, view this document um, will be shared after the, uh, the talk. And I will just point out that these are made available, again, in maternal hospitals throughout New York City and have been also used as organizing tools. I also want to mention the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which began as a partnership project between the Center for Reproductive Rights and Sister Songs Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective in 2013. The two organizations collaborated to collect the stories of Southern Black women and the challenges they face in accessing maternal health care leading to poor maternal health outcomes and persistent racial disparities. They published a shadow report for the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination in 2014. The Black Mamas Matter Alliance has since grown to become an alliance of Black women-led maternal health organizations and scholar activists among its many accomplishments, BMMA has provided guidance and toolkits for policy, practice, research, and culture shifts to improve Black maternal health, including initiation of Black Maternal Health Week in 2017. On March 11th of this year, two um, U.S. representatives, Terry Sewell of Alabama, also a member of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, and Representative Lauren Underwood of Illinois and Alma Adams of North Carolina introduced a historic bipartisan legislative momnibus package that builds on existing legislation in Congress to comprehensively address America's Black maternal health crisis. I encourage everyone listening to contact your elected representatives to pass this legislation. And as I wind down, I just want to say that we've always been in a state of crisis in terms of Black maternal health, as again, Dr. Cooper Owens has let us know. But it's also often been a time for opportunity. And so what we've always done to make a way out of no way. So 
So we knew with COVID-19 there were existing inequities and discriminatory practices in maternal health care that were exacerbated by the pandemic and the need for social distancing. There were restrictions placed on hospital visitation, leaving birthing people more vulnerable to discriminatory or inadequate or coercive care, in addition to the additional exposures to the coronavirus. We realized that vulnerable individuals and families could not safely shelter at home due to their lack of housing, their incarceration, detention, and their involvement in child protective services, or their experience with intimate partner violence. The lack of a viable safety net in black and under-resourced communities we, we knew would lead to disproportionate morbidity and mortality um, in the face of the pandemic. In terms of the opportunities, when two New York City hospitals disallowed visitation during birth, it was the advocacy of activists and public health workers informed by reproductive and birth justice that led to an executive order to allow at least one visitor during labor and birth. The existing national networks established by the Black Mamas Matter Alliance and their allies are creatively developing new models of care and training others to provide virtual midwifery and doula services to protect their and their clients' health. We've reimagined models of care that reflect the wisdom of our grand midwives and the innovative telehealth are making it possible to rethink and reconstruct our failing healthcare system. Some funders, not all, are eliminating barriers to support the capacity building and sustainability of grassroots providers of culturally responsive care. And we do know that the restrictions on maternal health workers' ability to provide services across state lines have been temporarily lifted, even though that had been something demanded um, by the community of maternal health workers for quite some time. So I'm going to wrap up by reframing maternal health with a reproductive justice praxis and what it will require. First and foremost, it will require us to listen to and amplify the voices of those who have been most impacted by sexual and reproductive injustices and health inequities, and to turn to them for research questions and methods and policy and practice solutions. How might we all rise to this challenge? By reconsidering our epistemological assumptions, how we know what we know, through exploration of critical theories that consider the complexity of the structural systems that produce and sustain these inequities. Irrespective of our methodological preferences, we might ask ourselves if we are more positivist than constructivist. Second, we can and should strive to engage those most impacted as co-researchers at all points in the research process. Third, too often researchers become embedded in their niches that merely describe disparities but do not contribute to their eradication. We need to do more studying up and not down and imagine sharing insider knowledge or emic analysis to probe the conditions that contribute to discriminatory practices in sexual and reproductive health settings. Perhaps we need more studies of the knowledge, attitudes, and behaviors of people in research environments that may contribute to social inequities. Fourth, we treat each human being that we encounter as a person with a story and not a bundle of risk factors by actively listening to each person and respecting their bodily autonomy and right to make their own decisions. We engage in participatory models of care and research that center those most impacted by health inequities, again, through the exploration of critical theories. When <coughs> we take risks, including political ones, on behalf of those that we treat, 
or study. We, we utilize our power and influence to dismantle the oppressive systems that perpetuate health inequities. Taking risks and utilizing our power might mean doing unorthodox practices like joining with other risk takers to change policies that endanger lives. I know a doctor who will remain nameless who once joined with another risk taker to distribute condoms to sex workers to prevent the spread of HIV. We also use our power by supporting, protecting, and amplifying the work of minoritized researchers. We become the ones to create new rules in a new game towards reproductive justice. And finally, humility is a daily practice. We strive to be better listeners than speakers. And I always want to remind folks to cite Black women for the work that we do, including this one. <laughs> and again, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Roberts, for your wonderful presentation. And uh, both of you, Dr. Owens and Dr. Roberts, for not only just um, laying that foundation in a historical context of where we've been to where we are, but also giving the frameworks and the solutions that um, individuals can use within their individual practices as well as, as their institutions to create systemic change. And so um, we have had a whole host of uh, questions that have come through. And so I'm gonna start with um, Dr. Owens, Professor Owens, um, as you've given talks on your books, um, what has been the response to your epi epilogue? Um, in addition, how and why did you decide to include your own personal story? Oh, thank you for that. I, um, so essentially, I finished the book when I was going through in vitro fertilization and um, had no clue that, that I'd be going through um, an infertility moment in my life. And so I remember doing an extremely painful um, diagnostic exam. I was not given any pain medicine. My cervix was dilated and I had to walk across the street um, for the second diagnostic exam. And was just kind of processing everything and a black nurse like saw my face and um, immediately showed compassion, um, talked to me, and I remember she asked me <laughs> what I did for a living and I always chuckled because I said, I write about the history of gynecology. And she, of course, everybody knows Sims and I was in New York and she said, oh, Sims. So we kind of had a conversation and I remember she said, you have to include this in the book. And being a historian, I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not objective. I can't do that. You can't include autobiography. And she said, girl, you better put that in the book. And I am so, so thankful I listened to her. Um, it's the only part of the book my editors did not send back for revisions. Um, but what I also think it does is it shows that in many ways, and I, I use Hortense Spiller, wonderful theorist, I used her language in the epilogue where I said, you know, you walk into these spaces not even sometimes aware that you are marked, that you are already marked in these kinds of spaces um, where reproductive injustice has happened so much. So the response has been really positive. I think people appreciated um, the insertion of my own life experience 
And so um, I've, I've been grateful for people sharing their stories with me, um, being affirming with me and to me uh, after reading that particular passage. All right, give thanks, give thanks. And it's, it's a powerful, um, I mean, if, if you all haven't, go get the book. Make sure you get the book. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. Support Black women in their writing. Get the book. Um, but it is a powerful story. And so please, you know, go get that book so that you can continue to read because um, our stories are important and they help to inform us in the ways in which we um, interact. And when we, when we start to talk about patient-centered care and we start to talk about the practice of humility within the work. Um, Dr. Roberts, as a scholar within Black maternal health, would you say that the key to ending the present crisis in which we are losing our women lies in reversing the long-term effects of racially disproportionate impacts of the FlexNet report by the creation of more HBCU med schools and reversing the downward trend of black males in medical schools since 1978 and continuing to increase the number of black females in medical schools? I think that's certainly worth doing. I don't think that's a panacea. Uh, panacea, I think it will require, and this, I wanna credit um, Loretta Ross for saying this, that we really have to make um, the preparation of our medical professionals more humane. And, and that's a, a, a larger enterprise than merely having those institutions. I gave birth at an HBCU hospital, and I will say that it wasn't, you know, an ideal experience. My first birth as a teen parent, um, and, you know, I talk about that in my book, <laughs> um, that, you know, I don't, you know, even the large majority of providers of a lot of maternal care are people of color and are Black women. Um, and that does, because it's systemic, mm -hmm. it, it has to be addressed um, more, you know, more creatively and with a lot of uh, changes in how we think about the provision of care and how we practice it. And most importantly, just, you know, it, it's, it's fundamental skills of listening and respecting the, the choices that people make about their bodies. And that applies to all of us. Um, wherever we are with, within these systems. Exactly, exactly. Right. So his understanding is not just about someone being a person of color who, as long as they're in front of you or a woman, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily change the scenario. Really, we, we really have to look and dig a lot deeper into the education and the type of training that individuals are getting and receiving. Okay, this is for both of you. Um, in a time when scholars and activists are rethinking language around slave systems, what language would you suggest we use for Sims and his centers of experimentation for other fathers of medicine? That's good. <laughs> did you want that one first or did you want me I was to gonna yield to you actually <laughs> as our historian in, in, in the space. You know, I'm sure there are historians who are who are in the listening audience, and there's been a lot of debate about the words that we use. Um, within our field. You know, there are purists who don't want to change the language, and yet I'm always saying, but we do change the language, because if we were to use colonial language or 17th, 18th, 19th century language, we would still be calling Black folk the N-word as well. Um, so there, there is always transformation in the language. Um, I'm always interested as a historian, I'm interested in the ways that 
scholars change the language because of what we need. Because the historical actors are dead, right? That doesn't mean that their legacy isn't here, but the historical actors are, are, are not here physically in, in the form um, that we occupy. And so often the language change is for us and it's for the kind of cultural respect that we want to give these historical subjects and actors who had not received it before. So when I first started, um, people were saying slaves and not enslaved, right? Or enslaved person. Um, it's now changed to enslaved person. Um, we said slave masters or slave owners. Now there's a push for people to say enslavers. Um, in terms of these monikers of fathers of, of gynecology, I'm not necessarily invested in that because I think like um, Lynn Roberts spoke and I spoke, I don't necessarily like the exceptionality. What I really wanna do is get to the root of what is systemic and what's structural and get out of the kind of great men, great woman version of history that we've been taught that I think often does a disservice to the kind of um, community history that I'm much more interested in and focused in and that I write about. Um, because when you are looking at Black women during this time period, oftentimes the tools for excavating information with great men, great women of history, that kind of top-down history, doesn't apply. Because these folks didn't leave written records. So I have to be able to extrapolate information based on the records that those who own them left. And so how do you do that? And so for me, it is a humility practice. It is about trying to find... Um, the, the flashes of collective humanity that these people were able to provide each other, even when slave owners and slave masters or enslavers um, were writing about them. So, you know, I, they can be called sites of experimentation. They can be called sites of exploitation. They can be called medical sites. I mean, they're, they encompass all of that, you know, my definition. Um, but the real, the real crux of it is what's the legacy and what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's, wow. Yeah. That's boy. Listen, absolutely. And the only thing I would add is just to say that making the, whatever the language chosen is to make it as accessible to those who are most impacted. Cause sometimes as, as Dr. Cooper Owens explained, we write scholars write for other scholars a lot of the times, but we also need to realize that our language can also be a barrier to um, to folks really getting to share their own stories of their own experience, putting that in a historical context, but also pushing us to what we're going to do in the here and now, and to also envision what the future can look like mm -hmm. um, that isn't you know fueled by these oppressive actors. Yes, definitely. Now, veggie backing off of that, that leads right into. Um, my next question, Dr. Roberts, and how can workers align politically with the structurally marginalized without system re redesign? What hopeful signs do you all see? The hopeful signs are that we are having these conversations and that we are taking the actions we are taking. I, I hope I gave some illustrative examples of that, and I couldn't really capture how much there was, you know, with these community gatherings that we held, with the work that you and your organization are doing, Chanel, and so many of the others across this country to really um, change these systems through both um, challenging what exists, but also creating their own models and returning to old, you know, historical models of care um, through their own cultures that, that, are, that are really um, 
you know, supportive of, you know, black maternal health. And I think, you know, without that community um, led approach that we, you know, we, we will continue to fail. We will continue to see these inequities and disparities. Um, and I, again, it seems like the same things are happening. We're seeing, you know, what we think are a repeat of history um, abuses of the black body, but we're also seeing, you know, some transformative um, change, even if it seems incremental that it is, it is actually happening simultaneously. And we have to hold both those spaces um, for ourselves. In fact, we need to know that it's happening to feel hopeful about things in this time. Yes, definitely, definitely. Deidre, um, can you speak to the need for education about racism for staff, administration, and clinical professionals, especially being a professor who is looking at the histories of these models um, in a more in-depth way? Yeah, thank you for that. It's interesting because the book is three years old now, and it's funny, the, the kind of first iteration was that people in the academy we're like, oh, this is great. We can invite her because there's a controversy around the statue. And then the second iteration where literally there was a breath of life were black doulas, birth workers, midwives who were like, we need you to educate, you know, our, our, our students, um, our, our mamas, our birthing people. And I have to be honest, you all were really the one to kind of have everybody else start paying attention. So now most of my talks tend to be for medical students. I don't know how many virtual grand rounds I'm doing. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you all the schools. Um, so I get requests daily from school, not even schools of nursing anymore, literally medical schools, where they're all like, we, we, we want you to, to teach us. And I'm like, teach you how to essentially treat black folk like how you've been treating white folk. Mm. Like, how do, how do I tell you to treat someone like a human being? And as Professor Roberts said, listen to them, respect them, communicate with them in a way that is accessible. Those are things that we were taught in as kindergartners. I mean, like literally we were all taught these things in, in kindergarten. And so for me, it's about, okay, I can put in the gaps for you in terms of the historical knowledge, but what does this mean when someone comes into a room and you've already made an assumption about them, right? I, I know when I walk into a room, assumptions are being made about me until someone looks at the sheet of paper and it sees what I, what I do for a living, or they'll ask mm -hmm. what I do. And there's this kind of shock, you know, this look of shock, like, oh, it, it, she's not doing what I thought she, she does. And so now I'll change my approach. And that has happened so many times. There are people who don't have that kind of adjacent, you know, uh, pro professional status. And so for me, I'm like, just treat every patient like you, you would treat anybody else. Treat us like the folk who are actually living and the quality of life doesn't have the same kinds of, of stressors. It really isn't hard to treat folk like human beings. Like, I mean, like you respect their humanity. So I, you know, the only thing I can do is help to change a curriculum which I've been doing that, um, working on some consultation projects with um, a startup, a woman-led a woman startup out in Southern California. I've done some work with some hospitals in, in a couple of urban areas, grand rounds, um, talking to these groups, 
But other than that, it really has to be, what is the engagement when one enters into a medical space? And mm -hmm. that's where I think the kind of cultural competency that's happening also has to get beyond the stereotypes around how we treat different groups of people and recognize, mm -hmm. even though we, we must be attentive to certain cultural distinctions, that still doesn't mean we don't treat people with respect. Like it, it really is about respect and empathy and compassion. Because people in the states when they're sick exactly exactly yeah i mean i know within the talks that i've given sometimes at grand rounds I, I my talks have really focused around cultural humility right so what does it mean to be humble so to have this shared experience with someone where you're learning you know from the person and you're getting that's what you know meeting someone where they are and not where you expect them to be and really doing patient-centered care you know that the essence of what i think it is um so that's beautiful thank you so much um, Lynn, can you speak more to what an uh, um, additive model is in regards to researching up and down, and how could researchers better enact um, uh, emancipatory uh, models? Oh, great question. I don't know if I can do it in the time <laughs> we have remaining, but um, yes, because, you know, people, you know, tend to think that you just decide on, you know, variables if you're doing, you know, quantitative research that just says you just add up the different, um, you know, individual characteristics. But if we're really looking at, um, you know, something that is more than someone's um, identities, it's also the context and it's also the structural systems. And for that, we have to have, you know, much more um, complex modeling and complex, you know, research design and it also must include um, those who are part of the um, of those systems, but also those who are most impacted. And I say both of those because the reason I talk about studying up is that again, if we don't, if we only examine the people who are impacted, and we see the data all the time, it's everywhere. But if we don't study those who are influencing those systems the most, how how can we expect it to change? Like why why keep? And it's almost it's almost harm. It's it's additional harm for many of us to listen to, to, I don't like reading the data. I don't like sharing data about black maternal health. I have, you know, I've, I've reviewed um, the actual, you know, cases at, for New York City and it's very painful and it's harmful for us to only do that if we aren't willing to take a similar examination of those who have the power and influence within these systems that are causing the harm. And so I don't have a perfect answer, but I know what, I know what the goal is. <laughs> and the goal is to create within our, within how we examine these, these questions, which is what research, you know, seeks to, you know, answer questions and ex come up with explanations, but it's more how, we're, what's going to lead to the solutions. So if you're, if your research isn't driving solutions and it's only um, descriptive of the problems, it's not emancipatory. Yes. And if it doesn't include those who are most impacted, it's not participatory. Yes. I hope that answers the question. Yes, I think that that was a great way to sum that up. And to close us out, um, I want to thank you both for sharing your knowledge, your wisdom. Um, so good to be with you. <laughs> and your insight into this matter. Um, and really thank the New York Academy of Medicine for hosting this space uh, where people can come together collectively and to learn and to engage. 
Again, uh, we want to thank our sponsors for this event, the Pew Charitable Trust, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Rita Allen Foundation for their support, and acknowledge Bar Barry and Bobby uh, Kohler for programming fund um, in making this opportunity happen. And you know, if you have signed up for the emails at the New York Academy of Medicine, you'll have an opportunity to get the recording at a later time. I thank you all for your participation and for your insightful questions. And please be well. Thank you. Thank you, Chanel. Good to see you. Bye. Deirdre, so good to see you. Yes. And that poetry, oh my goodness. Thank you, Lakeisha Berry. Thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you, Lakeisha Berry. Thank you. Yes. I learned so much, and thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Amazing.